0: More than 20,000, 20,000 lives lost since Monday's horrific earthquake. The lead starts right now. Screams of joy amid the horror a mother and daughter are found alive. Coming up, the miracle rescues and tragic discoveries. CNN is on the ground as crews climb through earthquake rubble in Syria and Turkey and President Biden takes a State of the Union roadshow to rival rich Florida and challenges a Republican senator on his clear proposal to sunset all federal programs, including Social Security and Medicare. But first, new images from the FBI as investigators begin to analyze that downed Chinese spy balloon recovered from the Atlantic Ocean. And lawmakers begin to learn just how sophisticated the surveillance equipment on board was. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and a flurry of new information about the Chinese spy balloon shot down by the United States. Today, the FBI announced it has started analyzing the first pieces of the balloon at its lab in Quantico, Virginia, and senior officials say those parts could be used as evidence in a future possible criminal case against groups linked to the Chinese military. The Biden administration has determined the balloon was capable of monitoring U.S. communications, but... Sources say U.S. officials believe that the Chinese government did not have the opportunity to gather much intelligence because the Chinese government stopped transmissions to the Chinese mainland once the U.S. found out about the balloon. House and Senate lawmakers were briefed on the spy balloon today, including the president's decision to let it fly across the country before shooting it down. A top Senate Democrat who led one of today's hearings will join us in just a few minutes. But we're going to start today with CNN's Alex Marquardt, who has new information about when the Biden administration found out the balloon was headed to the U.S.
1: The Biden administration and Pentagon facing a bipartisan barrage of questions today on Capitol Hill over the Chinese surveillance balloon.
2: You guys have to help me understand why this baby wasn't taken out long before. And because I am telling you that that this ain't the last time we have saw brief incursions. Accused of a
1: lack of alarm and criticism over their decision to not shoot down the balloon sooner when it was near Alaska.
3: The fact of the matter is, Alaska is the first line of defense... For America.
1: In four different, often tense hearings, administration officials stood by their argument that it was safer to let the balloon cross the country while also gathering intelligence on Chinese capabilities. Many Democrats satisfied, many Republicans still rejecting the White House and Pentagon's positions.
4: The next time, you know, we're not going to wait for it to trend, go all across my state, all across the lower 48 and then shoot it down.
1: Officials now tell CNN there was a warning from the Defense Intelligence Agency the day before the balloon entered U.S. airspace near Alaska. When it did on January 28th, fighter jets were sent up to ID the balloon, but it was decided to let it fly on on a northern trajectory and collect intelligence on it. Suddenly, an official said it took a strange turn south towards the lower 48 states, crossing into Idaho on January 31st and eastwards across the country. After it was decided to not shoot the balloon down over land, U-2 spy planes were sent up to monitor it, the administration determining that the balloon was no longer sending information back to China, sources say, as the U.S. tried to block it from gathering more intelligence on sensitive U.S. military sites. This balloon, just a small part of a broader, years-long Chinese balloon program whose fleet, the State Department says, flew over more than 40 countries. The United States was not the only target of this broader program, which has violated the sovereignty of countries across five continents. The balloon program run by China's military, officials say, in part out of Hainan Province, the southernmost tip of China. China outraged at the shootdown, demanding the return of the remnants of the balloon. The U.S. refusing, instead, sending the recovered pieces from the ocean to an FBI lab where analysis has begun. So far, that includes the canopy, wiring, and some electronics. And, Jake, we learned today that the balloon was carrying sophisticated electronics capable of surveillance of signals like communications and radar. Now, so far, what the FBI has collected has just been what was on the surface of the water just off of South Carolina. An FBI official says they haven't yet seen the payload where most of that surveillance equipment would be. This is the first time the FBI has investigated a spy balloon like this, and officials say that they're analyzing the components of the balloon – For possible criminal charges.
0: All right, Alex Marquardt. Thanks so much here to discuss. Democratic Senator John Tester of Montana. He's the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense, which hosted today's public hearing on the Chinese balloon, and also a Montanan. Who did you see it yourself, or did you just hear about it from
2: people? I did not see it myself, but there were plenty of people that did see it in Montana.
0: And you're upset about
2: it? Oh, uh, look. I mean, uh, we happen to have ICBMs in Montana. people of Montana appreciate freedom and privacy. They don't like anybody spying on them, much less the Chinese uh, communist government. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, what China did was a, was a major screw-up and an incursion on our air, air, airspace. And no, I am very upset about it. I, uh, I've heard for years that, that China is the pacing threat, and they are, both economically and militarily. And uh, I think we need to take this very, very seriously. I think the administration did. I'm not saying they didn't. But, but this, is a, this is a bad action.
0: Yeah. Some of your colleagues, uh, Republicans, have said that it should have been shot down earlier. Uh, the Biden White House says that the Pentagon said if we shoot it down when it's over land, that that runs a risk of, of hurting people, Montanans, uh, or even people... There are eight thousand people who live in the Illusion Islands uh, in Alaska. What do you think? Should they have shot it down earlier?
2: Well, I was I was in the column that says shoot the doggone thing down and do it do it as soon as possible. Uh, I think I think the military made a decision that that wasn't the best option. The best option was to do what they did. They had good reason for what they did. They explained it to us in classified session and and an open session in the hearing that I held, and and I accept. Uh, I accept that uh, that decision is, is a decision that was the right decision for them to make at the time. I will tell you what concerns me, though. Um, I chair the defense appropriations with, with Senator Collins. We need to get together to find out what the plan is and make sure the budget meets the needs to make sure this never happens again.
0: And so next time they send one over, because apparently this is the I guess there were three during the Trump administration and two during Biden. Uh, The next time it happens, there needs to be a plan to take it down as soon as possible?
2: I I believe so, yes. I think there needs to be a plan to deal with it in such a way whether it's either disabled so it can't collect anything or you take it out of the sky.
0: I want to run a little of the sound uh, that that you said earlier today about the threat this posed to the U.S.
2: To know absolutely that this was of no military threat to us, boy, I want to hear more about that in classified session, too, because quite frankly... I'm not sure that you can say that unequivocally.
0: So now you've had the classified session. I know you can't tell us classified information, but do you feel that there was no military threat?
2: I'm. I'm uh, I am much more comfortable with uh, the explanation of what they collected uh, as to being uh, that. Let me put it this way: it doesn't put our national security at risk.
0: One of the Pentagon officials that you're hearing said it could be days or weeks before all the debris. Is recovered yes um, from the ocean um, when will the public get answers about what this balloon was specifically doing yeah. and what was collected
2: well I, I don't know that uh, I don't know the public will ever get the answers that will be up to the intelligence community but but I will say this uh, there's a lot of smart guys that work in our military and in our Intel they're gonna collect it they'll put it back together they'll reverse engineer it and they'll know exactly what they were doing but it's probably gonna take some time I mean the weather is not conducive. They, got, they, had a, they, they said they had a good night last night picking up material from the, the down balloon. Uh, the weather's evidently going to deteriorate, so it, it'll put it off a little bit. But look, um, there's one thing that I know about the military. Uh, they are going to go out. They'll get every stick of that uh, balloon and its cargo that they can, and they'll put it back together, and they'll make a determination that will be what's right for this country. It will take some time, though. I think the bigger issue here, though, Jake, is that uh, this is an incursion on our airspace. And uh, it's always been a situation where we've said no. I mean, we've scrambled fighters. We've done all sorts of stuff. When there's, This is a balloon. It's not a fighter aircraft. It's not a bomber. But nonetheless, it still is an incursion on our airspace. And it's, it's illegal. And- Do you
0: think he was test? Do you think President Xi of China was testing President Biden, seeing how he would react, seeing if he was strong or weak or all that?
2: I think that uh, I don't think this happened by mistake. I think they knew exactly what they're doing, whether Xi knew it or somebody else knew it. This didn't happen by accident. And I think China always tests us and and maybe tests us to see what the political fallout was going to be, whether folks played politics with national defense, which is something we've never done. But we did see some of that with this situation or how the military was going to react. Uh, like I said, this isn't the first time you know that, that a balloon has crossed into our airspace in different administrations. And uh, we need to have a plan for that because obviously it's not going to stop. And uh, and I think uh, our airspace is is sacred to us and we ought to protect it.
0: So listen to President Biden asked what this whole saga has done to U.S.-China relations.
5: Have relations now... Between the U.S. and China, taking a big hit, no. frankly.
6: No, the idea shooting down a balloon that's gathering information over America um, and uh, is and that break that t- makes relations worse. Do you agree
0: that U.S. and China relations have not taken a big hit because of this?
2: I don't think China relations were particularly good before. Uh, the only the only proof point I point to, Jake, is that. Uh, Their equivalent to Secretary Austin uh, did not talk, uh, has not talked to. It Secretary wouldn't take Austin. the call uh, exactly, and and I think that isn't a particularly good sign because I think people need to communicate and, and let people know. The United States didn't do anything wrong here. It was China that sent the balloon over that came into our territory, uh, and China has not had a good explanation for this period. And, uh,
0: Although they're demanding the balloon remnants back. They want it back.
2: Well, I got a better idea for them. Just don't send them over in the first place and then they can keep them. All right,
0: Senator John Tester, Democrat of Montana. Always good to see you, sir. Thank Thanks you so much. Coming up next, CNN is live in the disaster zone. What desperation looks like in Turkey and Syria as food and water start to run out nearly 90 hours since Monday's earthquake. In our world lead, we go now to Turkey and Syria. The latest death toll from Monday's earthquake has now surpassed 21 Thousand. A disaster on top of a disaster as the quake's utter destruction reveals new challenges. Stretching emergency crews way beyond capacity. Roads are too damaged to deliver aid. And this uh, port in the southern city of Iskanderun is in flames after hundreds of shipping containers mangled by the quake caught on fire. Though the blaze has been contained for now, we're told plenty of hardships lie ahead. Sinan's Jamana Karache is back near the epicenter in Adana.
7: Endless lines on the road to Iskenderun. a devastated city's cry for help answered by a nation in shock, united in pain. These men tell us they drove more than eight hours carrying diapers, water and bread. Whatever they can do to help strangers who need all they can get. Destruction in every corner of the city. No building spared Mother Nature's wrath. So even in this
8: part of the city where buildings are still standing, you can see that there are cracks all over these buildings. They've sustained damage. So we're going to have to walk through here really fast. We just don't know how stable these structures are right
7: now. In seconds, life's shattered, livelihoods destroyed, a city and its people left broken.
9: I'm confused. I don't
7: know how to feel. Senseless. Cerver has been out here searching for his friend the only one left under the wreckage of this apartment building. No professional rescuers is here, just volunteers, drawing floor plans for their search in the dirt. First day I was really hopeful, but this is the fourth day. I'm, uh, I'm getting out of hope. Even happy endings here are overshadowed by the collective grief. Burak flew back from his home in London to find his sister and other relatives. It's a miracle they made it out. They were buried under the rubble for 15 hours, he tells us. I'm speechless to be honest. I'm in a
9: dream, very bad dream then. I'm hearing you know so many of our friends dying here. So many of relatives are dying. My feelings are all collapsed. I, I'm only breathing at the moment.
7: Around the corner we find Sohail overseeing the search mission here. For days, he's desperately been trying to get his parents out.
10: Our government helps, but it's not enough, obviously. So we are trying to get our people by our own, and we need you. We need everyone
7: who can come and help us. Suhail tells us he saw his mother's leg under the rubble.
11: I am not able to reach her.
10: Uh, She's there. I see her, but I cannot touch her. I understand... My mother is dead. I am trying to get my mother.
7: With every passing hour, for many here, the agonizing wait ends as the gut-wrenching reality sinks in.
8: And Jake, uh,
5: just a short time
8: ago, the Turkish government announcing the latest death toll, making this now officially the second deadliest earthquake in the history of Turkey since the 1939 earthquake that killed uh, more than 30,000 people, but right now the fear is this death toll is continuing to rise. The fear is it's going to continue to rise and significantly in the coming hours and days. You've got thousands of buildings like this one across the earthquake zone. This was a 14-story residential building, about 100 people are believed to have been living in this building, flattened by the earthquake, and we have seen over the past 24 hours since we've been here, these rescue workers have been working around the clock trying to locate survivors. But so far, Jake, they haven't found anyone alive. They've been pulling body after body. I mean, right now, we're watching them prepare to pull another body. Jake?
0: CNN's Jemana Karachi and Adina, Turkey, thank you for that report. And many of you want to help, uh, I know, uh, you can use cnn's impact your world for recommendations of how you can do so go to cnn.com impact for more on that coming up next to florida the belly of the beast for american politics right now president biden's message specifically to seniors in a state where roughly 20 percent of the population is at or past retirement age stay with us In our politics lead, President Biden visited Florida today, where he once again went after Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott for proposing to sunset all federal legislation every five years, which would include Social Security and Medicare.
6: The very idea, the senator from Florida wants to put Social Security and Medicare in the chopping block every five years, I find to be somewhat outrageous, so outrageous that you might not even believe it. But it's what he said. I won't do it again, but I will. 12-point American Rescue Plan, one of the points. All federal legislation such that's every five years.
0: CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now from Tampa, Florida. Priscilla, the Biden administration literally placed a copy of Rick Scott's Rescue America plan on, on every seat in the room at his event, which I'm pretty sure they would not have done had Senator Scott and other Republicans not lied about it and denied that he ever made the proposal.
12: Well, it was clear that the White House was aggressively leaning into this from the outset as the audience walked in and saw the plans on their seats as you mentioned now president biden made this his second stop after the state of the union and he wanted to drive home the message that he wants to protect social social security and medicare remember this was an issue that drew the fiercest reaction during the state of the union this week and he seized on the opportunity to come to the home state of senator rick scott and to draw a sharp contrast between him and scott the architect of that plan that you mentioned that would sunset federal legislation, including Social Security and Medicare, in five years. But this is also, of course, the home state of two potential GOP challengers in 2024. So Biden used his remarks to call on the irreference, the spirited debate with Republicans during the State of the Union to call Scott's plan, quote, outrageous, and also to say, quite simply, he would veto it if it got to his desk. Now this is a plan that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said does not have any traction. Scott on CNN this morning Pushed back, saying that he doesn't want to cut Social Security and Medicare. But it's clear, Jake, that this is an opportunity that the White House sees to seize on a key issue and potentially make up some ground with seniors, senior voters in the state of Florida. And of course, all of this as we await for the re election announcement or potential re election announcement of President Joe Biden. Again, doing that in a state and coming to a state where he would face. Uh, GOP challengers. Jake.
0: All right. Priscilla Alvarez in Florida for us traveling with the president. Thanks so much. CNN's Caitlin Collins and David Chalian are here to discuss. So uh, Caitlin, uh, as Priscilla just mentioned this morning, you you interviewed uh, Senator Scott about his proposal, which we're about the fact that he did in Rescue America call for all federal legislation to sunset after five years, and then it could be brought back up if Congress chooses to do so. Um, Then he started saying that Democrats tried to cut Medicare spending, you pointed out that what he was talking about was not a cut. It was allowing Medicare to negotiate for cheaper drugs. And then he tried to use something that I said, I was very surprised by this, back in (laughs) 2017 uh, as his defense to that. Take a listen to this little excerpt.
13: What passed in the Inflation Reduction Act, reducing drug spending is not cutting benefits to Medicare.
4: Okay, Caitlin, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. This is back when uh, Republicans were proposing reducing the cost of Medicaid. He said, Jake Tapper said, I know the Trump administration is excited that Medicaid will go back to the states where they have more control and can experiment and be more efficient. But without question, $880 billion is a cut. So...
0: He didn't include the quote where I talked about that the cut was analyzed by the Congressional Budget Office. Here's what I actually said back in 2017. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the health care bill that just passed the House would cut $880 billion over 10 years from Medicaid. Now, I know that the Trump administration is excited that Medicaid will go back to the states where they have more control and can experiment and be more efficient. But without question... $880 $880 billion fewer dollars is a cut. So the context here is I was quoting the CBO on its analysis on a proposal for Medicaid, and I was asking the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, Tom Price, how that cut, as defined by C- CBO, didn't violate Trump's campaign promise to never make such a cut.
13: Yeah. And really the issue here that it's a separate matter, Jake, is was what was most confusing to me as we were talking about this. And this is something I spoke with Senator Scott about just two days ago. I expected him to say this because it's in a new ad where he's calling on President Biden to resign. But what is happening here in the Inflation Reduction Act is that they've reduced drug prices. Basically, the government can actually negotiate these drug prices. So basically, it is saving them money. And reducing spending is not the same as cutting drug prices. It actually makes the drug provision more beneficial to those Medicare recipients. But that was beyond the point of what the interview was, which was to talk about his plan that he proposed and that he told me this morning he does not believe is a mistake to roll out this plan that would sunset all of this federal legislation, including Medicare, including Social Security, every five years unless it was authorized by Congress. And so that was really what was at the heart of the matter. That is what he is clashing with President Biden over. But that is also a fact that he was bringing up, essentially trying to argue he's not the only one putting Medicare uh, on the chopping block for potentially not being reauthorized. He's saying President Biden was doing the same. That right. was his claim.
0: Right. The cut is pharmaceutical company profits, right? Because now, right. now Medicare gets to negotiate. David. Cutting Medicaid appropriations by more than $800 billion over 10 years and and sending the money to the states and allowing them to experiment with less money. It's just not the same thing as what the what the Inflation Reduction Act did in terms of allowing Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. And I have to prices and I have to say it, it seems bizarre to suggest otherwise. I know he was trying to say that. I'm going to call it uh, a cut when Republicans do it and not when Democrats do it. But it's just not even remotely the same thing.
10: Yeah, I don't think it's bizarreness. Sorry. I think it's intellectually dishonest of, of what it actually is. And 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 as you're noting, it, if indeed uh, CBO scores this legislation that you were talking about back then, that is an actual cut and sends fewer dollars to the states to then experiment with, it, it's just apples and oranges from actually having the power to negotiate through Medicare with drug companies to bring the price down for people on Medicare for their prescription drugs having nothing to do with the overall funding level of Medicare.
0: Yeah, it's strange to me, but I guess he doesn't want to talk about part six, Caitlin, of Senator Scott's Rescue America plan. And anybody can go online and find it. It's still on Rescue America. Just Google it. The part six is government reform and debt. This is Senator Scott's plan. It includes the line, quote, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it. Again, unquote, Social Security and Medicare are federal legislation. So President Biden saying Scott proposed sunsetting those programs, it's accurate. I'm not saying it's a bad idea or a good idea. A lot of people I admire think that Social Security and Medicare, there does need to be discussions of cost savings. I'm just saying it's, it's in fact an idea, and it's one that Scott proposed. Why is he denying that he proposed it?
13: Well, it's deeply unpopular. I mean, he this came out and people in his own party were heavily critical of it, including Mitch McConnell, who, of course, he challenged for the top Senate slot in the Republican Party. And so it's been this point of an issue between even Republicans. They've been arguing about it. They thought it was very unpopular, unwise to do that in an election year. They're worried that it hurt them, of course, as we saw how Republicans performed in the midterm elections. One interesting point he made was he was talking about something that President Biden did when he was Senator Biden back in the 1970s, when he also suggested this idea of having federal legislation sunset. He brought that up. But it, it's notable because he said that Biden is twisting his words. And, of course, that was 50 years ago that President Biden rolled out this plan. And he was drawing a similarity between the two of them. And so I just think it's notable given you know, he's denying what is on his own website, what he's talked about. I asked why he didn't make an exemption for Medicare and Social Security if he wasn't talking about them. Uh, but, Jake, he didn't say why.
10: And can I just add there, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary on Air Force One today, Jake, fully acknowledged that President Biden, then uh, 32-year-old Senator Biden in 1975, Uh, had that position. It just has nothing to do with current sitting President Biden's policies, proposals or thinking uh, on this issue as he made clear at the State of the Union address.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm not saying sunset it, don't sunset it. I don't have a position on it. I'm just saying he did propose it. Caitlin Collins, David Chalian, thank you so much. Coming up, something you don't see every day, a Republican and a Democrat in complete agreement. Two senators, hear what they have to say. They're on the same side of an important global issue. They're going to both join me in studio next. Stay with us. And we're back with more of our world-lead Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Brussels today, holding a string of meetings with European leaders. His list of requests includes, but is not limited to, membership in the European Union, fighter jets, more modern tanks, and long-range missiles. This, as Ukraine braces for another Russian offensive. offensive. CNN's Sam Kiley is in eastern Ukraine for us. And Sam, is there a chance that Zelensky walks away from this trip empty-handed?
14: Well, he's certainly indicating, Jake, that he thinks he won't. Uh, He said uh, that his talks with the leadership in Europe had been concrete uh, and specific. Now, if that is true, and if that means he's not bouncing people, then they are talking concretely and specifically about long-range missiles and jets that possibly could be supplied. Now, the French and the British have not ruled out, they've not ruled them in either, but that is a step in the right direction. And if that is the case from the Ukrainian perspective, that could not come too soon. Because according to local commanders and local authority leaders here in Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, what remains of them outside of Russian hands, Jake, the Russian spring offensive, in their view, has already begun. There's been extremely heavy fighting continued around Bahmut and uh, Vulodar, where the Russians have reportedly suffered quite heavy losses and... Uh, in Crimea too, there's been a very heavy assault by Russians that the Ukrainians said that they held back at considerable cost, I think, to both sides. And in that context, local commanders here saying what they desperately need in the immediate term is more artillery and, above all, more ammunition. They say they're confident that they can hold the line, but pushing Russia further out of the country will depend on those more modern weapons, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley
0: in eastern Ukraine, thanks so much. Joining us now... For a bipartisan conversation. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia and Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana. They've introduced legislation today that gets at a critical issue, the War Powers Act. Who gets to decide when, where, how long American forces are sent into harm's way? Uh, and this show is almost 10 years old. I think you've been coming on the show to talk about the War Powers Act for, for, the, for, the, for the last decade. My entire 10 years in the Senate, and
15: it, and it was very lonely at the start. And then along the way, have picked up more and more support. But I'll say Todd Young of Indiana has been a fantastic comrade on this the last few years.
0: So I want to get to that in one second. I do want to ask about Ukraine, which is Ukraine now asking for fighter jets. There was a time when Biden said no tanks. Now there are tanks going there. Do you think that uh, Zelensky should get fighter jets from the U.S.?
15: You know, Todd may have a different opinion than me. I never served in the military. I'm on armed services. I got a kid who's a Marine. But I don't micromanage, like, which is the right platform at the time. What I do exercise oversight is... What's the degree of communication that we have with the Ukrainian defense forces so that they're making the asks and we're assessing them and in real time making decisions? And as long as that communication is strong, I feel like we're going to we'll get to the right answer.
0: What do you think? Because some of your colleagues, including Senator Roger Wicker, uh, is saying that the Biden administration needs to do much more so that
16: the Ukrainians can push back uh, this uh, Russian offensive. You know my default position is to listen to their military commanders, uh, working with our military commanders, and um, in the end, I think consistently we've made the right decisions about sending them material. I wish that would, those decisions would be made more quickly. When we think about a potential future conflict with Taiwan, there won't be uh, there won't be much time uh, to afford uh, delays in these sorts of decisions. So waiting a, a few additional weeks for tanks, uh, most recently, uh, could jeopardize uh, you know the the Ty- Taiwan effort in a future conflict uh, we need to remedy that and and hopefully if we do we can bring this conflict in ukraine to a close uh, all the quicker so let's talk about the war powers act the gulf and iraq
0: war authorizations as people may or may not realize they're still on the books and they're still being used in many cases you and senator young introduced legislation to repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of military force why well, first, these are
15: congressional powers under Article One, and too many Congresses of both parties have abdicated this responsibility to presidents of both parties, usually because they don't have the backbone to like put their name on the line when it comes to war. So, both Todd and I believe Article One matters. Um, Congress should be deeply involved in this. It's our job. Second, Iraq's not an enemy anymore. These these were war authorizations against an Iraq ultimately leading to the toppling of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athist Party. Iraq is now a security partner of the United States in the fight against ISIS, in the fight against Iranian bellicose activity in the region. Why have a war authorization against a nation that is your partner? Um, and finally, I think it sends a good message, a great thing about America. We have had a capacity to take nations we've been at war with and then end up as allies, Germany. Um, The U.K., Japan. And it's good to send that message that a nation that's been in war with the United States, we're open to making the relationship better. And other nations have been, too. I think that's an
0: important message to say. Why is it important uh, to you? I mean, I I, I think that theoretically uh, a lot of Republicans believe in a strong executive branch and don't I don't know that that's you, that 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 describes you. But and the legislative
16: branch. Uh, should defer. What's your take? Well, you're right. A lot of Republicans do. And I think Tim did a a really good job of outlining the legal arguments, the moral arguments, and some near-term national uh, security considerations. Let me focus on the latter. Every Republican agrees we should counter Iran. And there is no more important country in that effort than Iraq. So we need to partner with the newly formed government of Iraq, Prime Minister al-Sudani, is prepared to work with uh, the Americans, but more importantly, Middle East partners uh, throughout the region to ensure that the terrorist state of Iran doesn't form a land bridge through Iraq into Syria, down to Lebanon, uh, endangering Israel and beyond. And and so the best way we can do that right now is to affirm our support, our friendship uh, with the people of Iraq. But but he also points out, and and it's true, one
0: of the reasons this hasn't happened is because... It's a lot easier just to defer to the president of the United States and if things go great you wave the flag, and if things go bad, then you can criticize it and
16: not actually have to, as a lawmaker, take a position. Well, we've been, we've been doing that for decades now, and frankly, giving up our, our uh, legal prerogatives, but also failing to live up to our responsibilities, something Tim spoke to uh, as, as members of Congress. We need to make hard decisions, uh, hard decisions about when you enter conflicts, how those conflicts uh, are, are carried on, which we do through oversight responsibilities. And ultimately, after we authorize military force, we need to deauthorize force when a conflict is ended. That's what Tim and I are focused on here. Is it going to happen? Is it going to succeed this time? I, I feel very, very good about it. We, we filed today with uh,
15: 22 sponsors in the Senate, 11 Democrats, 11 Republicans, which means we have the votes to get it through the Senate. And I predict when we get to a floor vote, it'll be more like two thirds that we'll get to. Um, And while the Senate is usually slow and the House is fast, this may be one where the Senate will act first. The House patrons on this are really interesting. Barbara Lee, Chip Roy, Tom Cole, Abigail Spanberger, very broad ideological group. Um, And and I'll just go back to something Todd said. We got to have backbone. Todd had backbone when he enlisted in the Marine Corps. My son had backbone when he went into the Marine Corps. If, if our troops have the backbone to say they're going to defend this country, then Congress can't be chicken in, in making decisions about war, peace and diplomacy. So We've got to put our name on the
16: line. Just to illustrate how absurd this is, I entered the United States Navy right after high school. That was 1990. A few months later, the 1991 yeah. first Gulf war. Authorization. Congress has not repealed it since then. It's time we get back and into you the work. still look 18, 19, 19 years old. <laughs> Thank you so much. Th- you have a future in politics. <laughs> right. Please don't. don't. Uh, thanks to both of
0: you. Really appreciate it. And stay yeah, in Chip. touch, uh, and we'll right. keep covering this. Thanks, also on our world Lead, a success story for U.S. diplomacy, a jet carrying some 200 newly freed political prisoners from Nicaragua arrived at Dulles Airport outside Washington, D.C. today. Among those on board, journalists, business leaders, a prominent student activist, and according to Reuters, several former presidential hopefuls who had been jailed and called traitors by the police state regime of dictator Daniel Ortega. The Biden administration says the released prisoners who were taken away on a bus will go through a humanitarian parole process. Coming up, Southwest Airlines executives say flat out, quote, we messed up. But can the airline prevent a repeat of that holiday travel meltdown? How they address that question today, that's next. In our money lead, Southwest Airlines is back in the hot seat over its epic travel meltdown over the holidays. On top of hearing from angry customers who had flights canceled or luggage misplaced today, top Southwest officials also answered to lawmakers who want to make sure this debacle never happens again. CNN's Gabe Cohen has more now on today's hearing and a promise from Southwest.
17: Let me be clear, we messed up. Southwest's chief operating officer in the hot seat, facing lawmakers over their December meltdown.
4: I'm deeply sorry. Humbly apologize. I apologize once again. It was a
1: failure,
18: epically, from from top to bottom.
17: The pilots' union says it sounded the alarm about Southwest's flawed systems for years, but were ignored. Poor
16: performance was condoned. Excuses were
17: made. Processes atrophied.
4: Core values were forgotten. Why didn't you do anything about it? Uh, thank you, Senator. We were uh, addressing part of those issues. Obviously, it was uh, unsuccessful, but with regard to some of the crew scheduling, we had invested in those areas. Well, um, again,
16: because you did not listen to those warnings, uh, catastrophic conditions were created for passengers by the hundreds of thousands all across our country.
17: The airline vowing to do better, with a software update to their scheduling system going live tomorrow. They'll upgrade their winter resiliency and are working on a top-to-bottom fix.
4: Undoubtedly be in the millions and millions of dollars, but it won't be until probably in in March we'll have finished the assessment of exactly how much and where.
17: The airline canceled more than 16,000 flights, stranding more than 2 million passengers over 10 days in December. Most could not reach customer service for help. So you you won't guarantee that um, in a canceled flight,
8: especially in an instance like that, that anybody will be able to reach a live person at Southwest. That's what you're telling me.
4: Senator, in a day like today, or an or analogous day, yes, we will be able to in an exact repeat of that situation. I apologize. We can't staff. There's no way we could staff that, that high.
17: Southwest says they've reimbursed 273,000 customers with less than 11,000 to go.
4: But those are ones that have been submitted most recently, and we were within the DOT timelines of 30 days for processing all those.
17: The chair of the committee, Senator Maria Cantwell, critical of Southwest CEO Bob Jordan's absence from the hearing.
13: Your CEO didn't want to show up.
17: The airline tells CNN he had a scheduling conflict. Now, some lawmakers also called out the FAA for their system failure that caused that a national ground stop last month. But the agency itself was not on the panel today. Next week, they'll have their turn in front of this committee uh, with the FAA's acting administrator set to testify on Wednesday. And, Jake, there are sure to be many tough questions, not just about that ground stop, but also about those troubling near collisions that have happened uh, recently on runways at JFK and Austin. A scheduling conflict when he's called before the Senate? Okay.
0: That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next to the scene that is truly beyond words. CNN on the ground amid earthquake rubble where the last chances to find life are quickly closing. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the first hearing in the books now for the brand new House Committee on the alleged weaponization of the federal government against conservatives. Republicans laying out how they plan to make their case. Plus, I'll speak with Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine, among other matters. We'll ask him about that reporter arrested, handcuffed, face down. During the governor's news conference, experts are calling the actions of law enforcement outrageous. And leading this hour, new incredible rescues, almost 90 hours now since Monday's devastating earthquake shook Turkey and Syria. Let me show you some of the scenes coming out of Turkey. A mother and her six-year-old daughter were found alive in a collapsed house. In another scene, you can see heavy concrete slabs on top of rescuers as they pull a young man out of the rubble. And another cruise cradle a child known only now as Baby Helen found alive 68 hours after Monday's earthquake. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh starts us off now from Antakya, Turkey, right near the Syrian border where these heart-gripping rescues also come as we learn of, of a staggering loss of life. More than 21,000 people now killed.
11: Rescuers rush in, these buildings first three floors have collapsed down, but left their upper floors upright. And little Yamo, aged eight, is inside, possibly alive. By the time they get her to the ambulance though, it's clear they were too late. Her mother outside, only able to watch her everything vanish. My little one, She says, don't take her, don't let her get lost. Antakya's streets, a chilling patchwork of what's left standing and what's not left. In its ruins, anxious crowds of rescuers and locals thinking they heard someone alive, demanding silence so they can listen again. Down here is Ahmed, the rescuers say, alert, alert responsive, a Syrian refugee. The building next to him barely hanging on at an angle. Their work desperately wishing it were quicker. Across the city, hell has landed. This man guarding his neighbor's books with his father-in-law next to the body of his mother-in-law. He gestures behind him to where he once lived.
19: It's kind of hard to get your head around just how inhabitable a city of this size Has become so fast. Literally, every street you walk down has a scene like this. And the roads out, well, they're jammed full of people trying to get away to safety because the building still could collapse. And the roads in, rescuers, people even trying to get their possessions back, and those who've stayed, lining every part of the green spaces we can find with tents to try and stay warm.
11: The trees perhaps in just enough space away from buildings that could crumble a new world for children smiling neither oblivious nor somehow shaken too hard dust and the smoke of fires settles with the dust to choke the streets but back where we were an hour earlier there has been relief ahmed was saved pulled out from the hole his family perhaps still inside The medics keep asking him, did you hear any signs of life from them? No, he says. They say he cannot wait for them, that he must be treated after 86 hours entombed. The weight of grief, even as he is saved. His friend, Jamil, was pulled from the rubble earlier. I have been given life again, he says. I saw death before my eyes. I saw my own grave. The same twist of fate here. There have been noises deep inside the bottom of what was once an apartment block. First, out comes one man, Suleiman, age 21. The frantic work of medics here suggesting he did not make it.
19: I think it's the impossibility of hope here that somebody could emerge after all this time alive from the wreckage that's driving this large crowd of rescuers. The most intense work done by hand, right at the front of the rubble there.
11: Out comes a four-year-old boy named Alpazlan, rescuers said. Alive, seen trying even to take off his oxygen mask. His father, Tolga, who follows shortly, does not seem to move. 89 hours in the rubble, that both tore a world apart, but found enough mercy to spare its youngest.
19: Now, Jake, I'm standing in front of that scene, the end of the report there, and very different now. Clearly, no thought that life could potentially be spared. In fact, bodies still taken out, uh, a stench of death there, and the excavators, until just recently, working exceptionally hard indeed. But you can hear, around this extraordinary site, every second apartment block gone, uninhabitable, those in between so perilous, cracked, some tilting at an angle like this, this whole neighbourhood frankly will need to be entirely reassessed if not demolished and you can see what that means for people behind me here. In an open space where you know you can spend the night safely, you are of course freezing in these temperatures and burning anything people can lay their hands on now this city antakia better food better infrastructure fractionally warmer than when we've been earlier on in the week but still staggering how life here has been completely turned on its head in just a matter of days but also staggering to see someone holding on for just under 90 hours jake
0: cnn's nick payton walsh with an important report from antakia turkey thank you so much Joining me now, emergency manager for Doctors Without Borders, Ozan Abash. Uh, Mr. Abash, thank you for joining us. The executive director of Doctors Without Borders, Avril Benoit, was on the lead earlier this week. She said the ideal rescue window is 48 hours. Um, It's been more than that, but we keep seeing these miraculous stories of people getting pulled out of the rubble alive as, as recently as today. What is the most pressing medical need those individuals have?
20: Well, thanks for uh, having me here tonight and thanks for the question. Um, what are the most pressing needs? Obviously, is at this acute period, period is about the um, acute needs of, the, of these um, survivors, basically, um, mostly around the surgical needs or, or trauma-related care. Um, but as Avril also mentioned, um, the window is closing down. There's a tremendous effort to still look for, um, for people under the debris and, and rubbles. And uh, some reckless news are still coming along. But uh, unfortunately, as the time is passing, we are um, likely to see less of those good news.
0: The delivery of urgent supplies to quake-hit areas of northern Syria, of course, has been very complicated because of the long-running civil war uh, between opposition forces and the Syrian government. Syria, Syrians at the only United Nations-approved humanitarian corridor which is called the Bab al-Hawa crossings. They're frustrated. They say bodies were delivered before aid was delivered. What is the situation right now?
20: Well, this situation is, is not great, as you can imagine. Uh, Syria has been a um, war-torn country for the last 12 years. Um, there's a record of 14.6 million people needing humanitarian assistance already prior to the earthquake. And, and with this earthquake... Um, we see um, we see the impact, the negative impact, and in healthcare provision. We see the impact on the public services, and, and obviously, uh, it's translating into casualties, injuries. Um, the access has been has been challenging in, in Syria for uh, humanitarian organisations for a long time, and uh, and now uh, with um, with the control in different areas and, and limited access, it's just making it harder to provide medical care that is much needed for the survivors and victims of the uh, earthquake. A top United Nations official says he's open to the idea of
0: delivering aid to Syria via additional border crossings beyond just Bab al-Hawa crossing. He added that many non-United Nations relief agencies are already doing that. Is Doctors Without Borders using other crossings and is it safe to do so?
20: Well, at the moment, as Doctors Without Borders, we're exploring all potential ways. Um, any, any option to find a way to get the, the much-needed aid to deliver to people is, is what we're aiming for. Um, it's hard to tell which crossing points um, would, be, um, would be used at this stage. There are, there are negotiations ongoing, but um, as I said, as Doctors Without Borders... Uh, we are in, in, in uh, contact with all the uh, relevant authorities and uh, we are trying to explore all potential ways. Um, we are present in, in Syria, in the northwest and also in the northeast for, for a long time. And, uh, and it, up to now, we have managed to uh, support more than 30 hospitals, health facilities through donations of emergency kits, trauma kits, medical supplies, Blankets, anything that we could think of. Is this enough? Obviously not. Um, We're looking at um, a a massive scale here. Um, Population that that has been already um, um, affected from the conflict, the displacement, um, um, problems like malnutrition, chronic diseases, outbreaks. And now with the earthquake, it's just um, compounding to a degree that is going to be catastrophic maybe.
0: Ozan Abbas with Doctors Without Borders, thank you so much. And if you thank want you. to donate, go to doctorswithoutborders.org, doctorswithoutborders.org, for even more ways to help the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. You can go to CNN.com impact. Coming up, President Biden gives a new explanation for the classified documents found at his home and office, plus a change of pace in D.C. as lawmakers roast members of their own party for a few laughs.
3: You've given Republicans a bad name, and that's Lauren Boebert's job. (laughs) Just kidding, Lauren, don't shoot.
0: In our politics lead, a new House panel investigating the alleged weaponization of the federal government against conservatives held its first public hearing today. It aims to probe claims that the Justice Department, the FBI, and other agencies are biased against the Republican Party. Democrats say the GOP is simply weaponizing weaponization itself. CNN's Sarah Murray has been following the hearing... Sarah, what was the new panel aiming to accomplish in this first hearing, and did they succeed?
3: Well, look, we've heard a lot from Jim Jordan, who's the chair of Judiciary Committee, leading this subcommittee about this allegation. You know, he says it's backed up by whistleblowers. He hasn't offered much other evidence but the notion that the federal government is essentially targeting conservatives. Democrats, meanwhile, on this subcommittee say the whole premise of this thing is bunk. So take a listen to Jordan today and Delegate Stacey Plaskett. She's a top Democrat on this subcommittee.
17: Protecting the First Amendment shouldn't be partisan, protecting the Constitution shouldn't be partisan, and protecting the fundamental principle of equal treatment under the law should not be partisan.
21: I'm deeply concerned about the use of this select subcommittee as a place to settle scores, showcase conspiracy theories, and advance an extreme agenda that risks undermining Americans' faith in our democracy.
3: Now, look, we heard from Senator Chuck Grassley. We heard from Senator Ron Johnson. We heard from former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. And essentially what we heard from were a lot of their personal grievances. Hillary Clinton's emails came up. The Hunter Biden laptop story came up. Uh, more coronavirus disinformation came up. And essentially their complaints that they believe that they were essentially described as misinformation agents and that the government worked with the media in order to make that possible. We also heard from a former, a couple former FBI agents who raised a few concerns. But again, a lot of what we heard were personal opinions, not so much evidence to back up Jordan's claim.
0: Well, hopefully he'll produce some evidence coming forward. Sarah Murray, appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Governor, uh, you just heard Sarah Murray reporting on this committee hearing investigating the alleged weaponization of the federal government. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, he was one of the panelists in front of the committee. I want you to take a listen to what he said.
2: ...conceivably become part of a proud history of serious bipartisan oversight, or it could take oversight down a very dark alley filled with conspiracy theories and disinformation, a place where facts are the enemy and partisan destruction is the overriding goal.
0: Now, Obviously, we shall see what this uh, special committee does. Uh, but you've had to contend, as w- in your time as governor, with all sorts of conspiracy theories and misinformation. Uh, are you concerned at all?
22: Well, I've rarely, Jake, to tell you the truth, not been following that. I've been dealing with a uh, train derailment uh, in the eastern part of Ohio. Uh, I've been dealing with, uh, we just submitted our budget. So my focus is, you know, right right here on the state of Ohio. And I've not, you know, didn't follow the hearings today. So...
0: How is the community in East Palestine doing uh, with that derailment and and the chemical situation?
22: They're doing well. Uh, You know, we had so many volunteers. Uh, The fire department that that is made up of almost all volunteers did a phenomenal job. Uh, We had the National Guard come in to be of assistance as well as the highway patrol. Uh, But people just rallied together. And uh, the the end of the story is not over. But uh, people were able to go back in their houses yesterday. Um, and, you know, I, I worked uh, with, with my friend across the line, Pennsylvania. Uh, you, know, you know, the governors and I talked a lot. And uh, because a lot of this, the people affected were in Pennsylvania. And I think it was a good, a great effort by a lot of people. And uh, things look, things look good. I mean, people, this thing could have turned out very, very bad.
0: So that's interesting that you say that, because uh, I remember when you were a senator and now you're talking about working with Democratic Governor Shapiro across the state line in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And you seem to be somebody, even though Ohio is pretty Republican these days, you seem to be somebody that, that has an interest in and appreciation for bipartisan work. Um, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave the Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address. She said the dividing line in America is no longer between the left and the right, but, but between the normal and crazy do you agree that the democratic party and democratic public are crazy
22: well i've always i always tried to uh, look at things from the point of view of let's let's fix it and i think governors are in a unique position to to do that because the problems that we have uh, many times are not partisan uh you know there's not a partisan way to go deal with a train wreck. Uh, there's not a partisan way really to uh, educate educate our kids. mean, um, one of the things that we did, for example, in this uh, budget that I just submitted to the state legislature uh, is really focus on literacy, reading, uh, and the science of reading, uh, the evidence is in that that is the best way to teach kids how to read. So it's these types of debates that I think, uh, you know, governors engage in and maybe, you uh, you know, we're we're lucky in a sense that the things we focus on uh, many times are just not very partisan at all.
0: Your state of the state address um, also focused on creating um, employment opportunities for Ohioans with new jobs, especially for the younger population. So they'll stay in Ohio and not move to another state. Um, is Ohio getting enough resources under the Biden administration to do that?
22: Uh, you know, look, we're moving, we're moving forward. Ohio is doing well. Uh, the president came out to uh, uh, you know talk about a bridge we're building across the Ohio River. Uh, that's a, a, again, a joint venture with uh, Governor Bashir in Kentucky, uh, myself, uh, and and the federal government. Uh, you know, all putting money in. it's all going to make a difference. and it's a bridge of really national, significance. Uh, I do want to say one thing. Uh, you mentioned the president, and I, I noticed that in his uh, State of the Union speech, he talked about uh, children and mental health. And this is something that we have really put an emphasis on in Ohio. I'm very proud of some of the things that we're doing, uh, some of the things that we presented in our, in our budget that will be coming up. Uh, but uh, when you talk to teachers, when you talk to parents, you talk to superintendents, mm-hmm. uh, the mental health of our children is certainly something that is very much uh, a, a grave concern.
0: Yeah, a lot of, a lot of damage uh, because of uh, COVID and, and uh, the policies that followed. I, I have to ask you, yesterday at your news conference, there was a reporter from News Nation. He was arrested while doing a live shot uh, while you were speaking. Uh, news Nation says the reporter ended his live shot just moments after he was asked to stop. But police... Uh, claim a physical altercation left to his arrest. What have you sussed out about what happened, uh, and can you assure journalists in Ohio that's not going to happen again?
22: Well, we just released um, a short time ago the, the video from the State Highway Patrol, uh, so people will have the opportunity to look at that. Uh, I made it very clear yesterday that the reporter never should have been stopped from reporting. Uh, you know, I've held, I think, since I took office, over 500 press conferences. I usually stay there until the last question is asked. I have a great deal of respect for people in the news media. Many times they're reporting live. That's what he apparently was doing. Uh, And someone thought that he he was too loud and approached him about that. But he should not have been approached. He should have been allowed to continue to uh, report and do his job.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir.
22: Thanks, Jake.
0: Coming up next, President Biden taking a trip to the past, to 1974 to be exact, trying to explain how classified documents ended up at his house. The latest attempt at brushing off this controversy, that's ahead. In politics, President Biden attempting to deflect blame for his classified documents controversy. He's refusing to accept responsibility for the mishap, essentially blaming his staff and downplaying the significance of the classified documents he was improperly in possession of. This is him with Judy Woodruff.
6: The best of my knowledge, the kinds of things they picked up are things that from 1974 and stray papers. There may be something else I don't know, but one of the things that happened is that what was not done well is as they packed up my offices to move them, they didn't do the kind of job that should have been done to go thoroughly through every single piece of literature that's there.
0: 1974, literature. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, uh, Biden uh, is really downplaying uh, what these documents were. We should note that the president sometimes, it happens, makes incorrect statements.
23: That is exactly right. In the course of this investigation, he has publicly said things that turned out not to be true. And so far, the White House and his legal team are declining to comment on this claim that some of these materials were from 1974, which would be the year after he was first elected to the Senate. But what you also heard there is this argument that they're making in the court of public opinion that passes responsibility for the situation off to the staff. Now, specifically, there is one former staffer, Kathy Chung. She was a top aide when he was vice president. She was one of the people overseeing this the packing up of these boxes. I spoke with someone close to her. She said, yeah, she feels partly responsible for this situation. And it's clear the Biden team, they're happy to let her be the fall person here. As she has spoken to investigators in the initial review, It's fully expected that the special counsel will also want to talk to her. And she's also been targeted uh, by oversight requests. Now, even if they want to make her the central figure here, right, uh, much of the public isn't going to buy the argument that even though you're the one in charge, you're not responsible. We also heard him say there, Jake, that there's some things he doesn't know. It's not clear from our reporting exactly how much information he is getting about the ongoing day to day in this investigation. But we know from our sources that the FBI, they're still combing through all the material that they collected in these two houses. So there's more that we're all likely going to learn in the course of this probe.
0: Paula Reid, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel and Margaret. Uh, President uh, Biden uh, proverbially throwing staff members uh, under the bus and also downplaying what you know, what these classified documents are, 1974, I mean, what is that Nixon secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, perhaps?
5: Right. Look, if this is limited to 1974 and a few straight papers, a lot of the stuff's probably declassified or in the declassified category since. But he is betting a lot on the fact that the the future release of information is going to exonerate him on this. And I think President Biden has made the calculation and his team that drawing a distinction between... Um, contemporaneous like, documents that Donald Trump had and things from his early days as a senator is a distinction the public will understand. But I think people do want to hear some degree of humility. Like What people want to hear from all public officials is no one should take classified documents and have them in their possession. That was a mistake. It may be a mistake I made 49 years ago, but it is a mistake nevertheless, and I'm going to own it. And that's not the way he's playing it right now. So I think we'll see where this goes. But also,
0: Jonah, it's, it's, I think it's something like 20 documents at this point. I mean, we're going to find out at
5: that's some it. point what the we're topics to find- are.
0: And if it doesn't line up with that, then right. that explodes into another controversy. Well, also,
24: and the thing I keep focusing on is, you know, they had this statement where they found another tranche of things and they said, we've recovered six items. Items, right. Right. So now I, I actually happen to know a very prominent criminal lawyer in Washington who does high profile things. And when he picks up He picks up from the FBI when he gets his client's evidence back. It comes in an envelope or whatever, and it is, you know, say, item one, a USB drive. Item (laughs) two, a hard drive, right? Item three, a document. The hard drive could have 10,000 documents on it. We just don't know right now. And I also just don't think, as a political matter, reminding people that he has been in Washington since 1974. I mean, this is a guy who took office the same year The Godfather came out. Um, It kind of... It kind of raises the thing. So, so you've had classified documents floating around for half a century and you're only discovering it now. It's not necessarily the best. Part. Right. Not the, not the defense he
0: thought it was. Alencia, um, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina was at a, a speaker at a dinner party uh, here in D.C. She poked fun at some of her Republican colleagues uh, and she was pretty funny. So I want you to take a look.
3: Did you watch McCarthy during the speaker's vote? I haven't seen someone assume that many positions to appease the crazy Republicans and Stormy Daniels. Lauren used to own a restaurant called Shooters. That's like Matt Gates owning a restaurant called Jailbaits. Like who lies about being a about playing college volleyball? Like who does that? If you're gonna lie, at least make it about something big. Like you actually won the 2020 presidential election. And I know everyone thinks Republicans aren't funny, but if you get a bunch of us together, we can be a real riot.
21: I mean, <laughs> holy smokes, props. That was some—that was actually good stuff. I mean, look, the material rights itself, it's, she needs to go to SNL if Congress doesn't work out for her. But, you know, I, I, hearing the Republicans laugh hysterically at that is a little concerning because they won't hold any of their colleagues accountable for all of the egregious things she's making a joke about. And so I think it will be interesting to see the uh, Republicans as we go into this Congress where they have the slim majority, but also in the 2024 election, how they're trying to define themselves against some of these extremists. I feel like she was trying to do uh, some of that uh, by, you know, making a lot of jokes. But, you know, those laughs while they, you know, were laughing about them and it was entertaining to watch. Are they actually going to do something with, I don't know, this con man George Santos instead of
25: just laughing about it. Well, it's it's kind of like cynicism in a way, right? It's like if if this is what you think because the jokes did sound like they were written by a democratic comedian (laughs) (laughs) somehow. (laughs) You know, and even as she's delivering them a little bit tentatively, well, she's saying Republicans are funny. Um but yeah, there was something really cynical about laughing at the item she was pointing out specifically, the mm-hmm. things that have brought the most concern to people within the party and outside of it.
0: So, um, there is a group of House Democrats who introduced a resolution today to expel uh, Congressman George Santos from Congress. It is unlikely to reach the floor of the House for a vote, but at least one House Republican tells CNN uh, they would vote for it. McCarthy has a tight margin. Nancy Mace uh, has called for uh, Santos to resign. Other Republicans from New York have called on him to resign. I, I guess the question I have is, Ultimately, are Democrats better off with Santos there uh, as this freak that
25: dishonors his party day in, day out? That's a description. Um, I think that he really, like, he does draw some of the news cycle every day, and it sort of gives them something to bat around that's not other issues that they might be concerned about. I do think people are going to get tired of this, though. Um, And at a certain point, are they going to just look at Kevin McCarthy and say, "Okay, but seriously— Like all of these voices, your whole New York delegation is saying at the baseline, can't we just agree to this? The flip side is now you're hearing this talking point about Biden and whether Biden is a liar. And there's like a strange defense of George Santos that uh, in the sort of right wing media sphere that hinges on the idea that everyone lies and definitely Biden lies. And again, that's just a very cynical argument to make to the public Mm -hmm. um, that this liar is okay because you're defending, you're a liar, and we all have liars. It's like, this is not the place we want to be well, there's in in there no politics. equivalency
5: to George Santos. There's yet another revelation today about the Amish case with the dogs. Oh, it's yep.
25: But it's happening. You but- are hearing it very much as an argument that is made, and, you know, honestly, it's been surprising.
0: To be fair, President Biden, then Vice President Biden, then Senator Biden, has said a lot of things that aren't true, including stories about himself and his And his livelihood. I do want to give and his like career, but I do want to give him credit because he actually is the one telling the truth in this face-off with Rick Scott uh, about whether or not Scott proposed sunsetting every five years every federal program, which would presumably include Social Security and Medicare. And Biden was uh, hitting him again in Florida. Take a look.
6: Republicans seem shocked when I took out the pamphlets they were using about cutting Medicare and Social Security. Read from. You know, Senator Scott's proposal. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's seen the Lord. <laughs> but he wanted a sunset, meaning if you don't reauthorize it, it goes away. The very idea, that senator from Florida wants to put Social Security and Medicare in the chopping block every five years, I find to be somewhat outrageous. What's
0: weird to me about this, Lindsay, is, I mean, Rick Scott keeps pushing back on this, but it's just factually correct. He did propose sunsetting these pro- every federal program every five years.
21: Yeah, I mean, in the interview that he did this morning with your colleague, he was pushing back. And also a big fan of you, actually, oh, <laughs> kept yeah. referencing uh, some of some of your coverage. I don't think it was this.
0: supportive, but right. yes. <laughs>
21: <laughs> but no, you know, it is it's very interesting that he continues to deny what is actually, as President Biden said in the State of the Union, like I have the receipts yeah. but I can show you the plan. And yet He is continuously trying to pivot and say that, for some reason, Democrats are not on board with with this plan. But I, I will say, again, and I'm sure we've been talking about this all the time, President Biden did a layup and got us a campaign slogan for the next two years or campaign after the next two the years. To yeah. Finish the job. Finish the job and the State of the Union, but also to continue to go into these states and actually show folks what their plan is. Um, I, you know, I think it's going to help us help us in the long run, but continue to help I, I thought
0: the
24: slogan was good luck in your senior year. But <laughs>
0: <whatever>. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, Joan, I do want you agree with Phil Klein of the National Review that both parties are being irresponsible on Social Security and Medicare yeah. by saying no one should touch any of this yeah. you, you you i mean there is uh, an issue here in terms of their
24: solvency that's what was gross about the whole thing to me is it was this roaring consensus about denying the reality that these entitlement programs are going bankrupt and that we need to do something about them and joe biden did not tell the truth when he said you could just tax the richest people to pay for to fix it all it's not true
0: Yeah, and we'll have a we'll keep talking about that because it is a bigger issue than this whole Rick Scott Joe Biden thing going on. Uh, Thanks to all for being here, and don't forget it's Audie Cornish Thursday. The latest episode of Audie's podcast, the assignment dropped today. It is very timely ahead of uh, the Eagles' pending win on Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) It dives into the future of football and safety in the wake of Demar Hamlin's collapse last month. Audie Cornish's the assignment available now wherever you get your podcast. And thanks for being here again on Audie Corners Thursday. I appreciate it. Coming up, a CNN-exclusive leaked police files in China give families a a chance to track down their long-lost relatives after years of forced separation and silence. Stay with us. In our buried lead that stories we believe deserve more attention, several exiled ethnic Uyghurs from China's Xinjiang region are learning for the first time what happened To their families after years of no contact, thousands of hacked Chinese police files reveal an ominous reality. Relatives being punished, thrown into detention centers, simply for being related to dissidents. CNN's Ivan Watson got exclusive access to these files.
18: The search for missing loved ones.
26: I am uh, putting in my uh, younger sister's uh, ID number.
18: Abduwali Ayyup is a human rights activist and ethnic Uyghur from China's Xinjiang region. From exile in Norway, he looks for the first time at a Chinese police file from 2017 on his sister's Sajida.
26: It's really in detail.
18: He hasn't spoken to her in years.
26: She got arrested September 6th. Sent to education camp, stayed there um, about a month, and then sent her to detention center and sentenced 11 years.
18: The Chinese police file states that Sajida Ayup is a two-faced or treasonous government official. Police apparently flagged the high school geography teacher because of ties to her brother, an outspoken critic once jailed by the Chinese government.
26: The government document told me that, yes, it is. It is related to you, and it is your, your fault.
18: Ayup got early access to this new search engine. It's linked to tens of thousands of files that were hacked from police computers in Xinjiang.
14: It's 830,000 different people are in these files. And it's clear from the files that tens of thousands of them are detained. Adrian Zenz,
18: a researcher with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, first released some of the hacked police files last year. The Chinese government has not denied their authenticity, but state media has slammed his analysis of the data, calling it disinformation. Beijing denies it committed human rights abuses while detaining up to two million ethnic Uyghurs and other minority groups in re-education camps in Xinjiang. A campaign of mass repression, the U.S. government claims amounts to genocide. Zens launched the search engine, hoping it will provide the Uyghur diaspora information about family members back home
14: in Xinjiang. The black hole is the most terrifying thing, and I think that's part of why the Chinese state creates this black hole. It's the most terrifying thing that can be done, that you don't even know the fate of a loved one is either even alive or dead. Mama
18: John Juma remembers June 12, 2006, the last time he saw his family. I remember that day. I was passing the airport checkpoint,
9: and they were waving, and I saw them. Their image is still in my mind, you know? The picture, it comes to me sometimes. So that's the last time I saw my brother's.
18: Juma is now a journalist with Radio Free Asia's Uyghur Language Service in Washington, D.C., which Beijing labels as an anti-China propaganda organization. Unable to go home for fear of arrest and unwilling to even call his relatives for fear they could then be punished. Let's see. I'm going to search one of my brothers. So now he can only look at their police files. Did the files confirm the detention of any of your loved ones?
9: Yes, uh, detention of my, uh, three of my brothers, yes. And then
18: I found one of my brother's pictures in that, uh, in that, in that file. A mugshot of his younger brother, Isajan, taken in detention. How did he look? He looked, uh, he lost his soul. It
9: gives you a feeling of guilt, you know? Because, because of that, they're tied to you and they're persecuted. It's, it's not really kind of uh, easy feeling to digest.
18: A photo of Juma and his brothers in happier times.
9: I wish I could go back to this moment, you know. I wish I could go back to this moment.
18: Today, Juma is left piecing together what happened to his family through the Chinese police files. And the level of detail, even on people who were never accused of crimes, is chilling.
9: Fingerprints, DNA samples, voice samples, profile pictures, iris scans. So these are the biometric information they collected on my mother. When you look at it, so you see this perfect example of a uh, full-blown surveillance state.
18: Half a world away, in Adelaide, Australia, Marhaba Yakub Salai just found a police file for her 17-year-old nephew.
9: That's insane. That's, that's terrible. No, I didn't expect that.
18: The file states that in 2017, when the boy was only 12, police labeled him Category 2, a highly suspicious accomplice of a public security or terrorism case. And that's not all.
9: Yeah, this is my niece.
18: Your niece has a police file.
9: No way.
18: The file claims that by the age of 15, Marhaba's niece traveled extensively, something her aunt denies.
9: Argelia, Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Dubai, Egypt, Pakistan. No way. is that, that mean they are saying that she has been in this country?
18: So far, neither child has been detained, but Saleh worries for their future. Their mother, Mayila, her sister, has already been in and out of detention for years, accused of financing terrorism for wiring money to her parents in Australia to help buy a house. If you could tell them something, what would you like to tell them?
9: I am so sorry what's happening to them, and I'm so sorry what's happening to their mother and my sister. I'm sorry I can't help them. They deserve so much better than this. They are innocent.
18: The more than 800,000 police profiles only provide a partial snapshot of the broader system of surveillance and repression in Xinjiang. They don't alleviate the survivor's guilt shared by many relatives living abroad, desperate to learn anything about their loved ones back in China. Now, Jake, I have interviewed dozens of ethnic Uyghurs and Kazakhs from Xinjiang in the diaspora. I cannot stress the pain these people uh, feel being cut off from their loved ones. CNN has reached out in writing to the Chinese government for comment about this story, has not heard anything back. The U.S. government accuses the Chinese government of committing genocide in Xinjiang. The Chinese government denies any human rights abuses whatsoever there. Evan Watson shining a light
0: on the human rights abuses committed by the Chinese government. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Coming up next, two seemingly unconnected murders within a week shaking New Jersey communities. For the second time in about a week, a New Jersey council member has been murdered. Stay with us. For the second time in roughly a week, a New Jersey council member has been shot dead. Councilman Russell Heller, who represents Milford, New Jersey, was found dead in his car last night. CNN's Shimon Procopest joins me now. Shimon, is this considered an isolated incident?
26: yeah it is, and authorities there in Milford uh, say that they don't believe this is even politically connected. What they believe is that this was a coworker of russell Heller. Uh, they suspect that he is the person that shot him as he was getting out of his car to go to work over at p s e and g The suspected shooter, Gary Curtis. Was found dead a, a couple of hours later, police say, from a self-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. They don't believe that this is connected in, in any way to a second shooting that happened about a week ago in New Jersey, where in a separate county, in Middlesex County, uh, 30-year-old uh, Eunice Dumfar was found dead. The police don't know the motive there. They're, they're still investigating that. That happened about... A week ago. But, you know, of course, obviously this is bringing great shock to both of these communities as police continue their investigation on the one that happened a week ago and then the one that happened yesterday, Jake.
0: Shimon Brokopez, thanks so much. Coming up next, the desperate search for survivors as the death toll rises in Turkey and Syria. An update from the ground. Stay with us.